0: Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello, people, this is Ben. This is A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers, my podcast. Nice of you to join me for this uh, what has now become traditional end of year episode whereby we have a little um, reminder of who came on uh, and chatted with me this year on the podcast and uh, as is pretty much always a case I had some fantastic guests and some really wonderful conversations. Ones at least that I enjoyed uh, having and I hope that you also enjoyed listening to. So I wanted to remind you all of who came on and who had a chat with me. And so we're going to have a little romp through those guests, um, a little clip from each as is now traditional. By the way, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Capture One Pro, the professional photo editing software for every photographer that allows you to shoot, edit and collaborate wherever you'll find yourself. So basically, yeah, go to captureone.co slash asmallvoice23 and uh, you can get yourself an exclusive 20% discount on your first year subscription and, of course, a free 30-day trial so you can try Capture One Pro for yourself. Uh, if you're using some other imaging software that you're currently in, not exactly uh, enamoured with, then have a look at Capture One Pro. Fantastic product. And a great sponsor for me. I'm very happy to have them on board. And also, if you want um, a full three-month trial, I think you can still hit me up by email, ben at com, and I'll send you the uh, QR code to get that. Whatever stage you're at in your photographic trajectory, in 2024, you can tell your best stories yet and bring your vision to life with Capture One Pro. So the year has flown by, as is now always the case. And... Um, Well, this was the year, I guess, that, you know, I had a little celebration because we had a million downloads to mark. And um, as I've said a couple of times, it is by some standards, no great shakes. And uh, I'm sure there are many podcasts that get those kind of download numbers every single episode. But um, perhaps not many, only maybe a few. And I'm not in competition with those people. Uh, That would be absurd. So it's still something that I wanted to celebrate. And um, we did have a lovely celebration. Thank you to everyone who showed up to that past guests and friends and friends of the podcast alike. I appreciate every single one of you who came along. Um, to help me celebrate that little event. Also, this episode is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, which, as you know, is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Not an easy word to say. I haven't had a drink yet. Um, And so go to charcoalbookclub.com. Have a look at everything that they released as a book of the month and uh, you will see the quality and the breadth of photo book that they curate for you so that you can have a sort of lovely lucky dip of released books every year that they've chosen themselves and um, I still enjoy receiving those very much and you can too you can sign up for a monthly subscription go to charcoalbookclub.com and if you sign up each month you'll receive a new museum quality first edition monograph to add to your shelves as I say hand picked by charcoal's team of expert curators and very often signed by the artist as well in fact nearly always signed by the artist it's funny when I um know that I've got to go back to all the recordings and pull out some clips from this episode I always have a slightly sort of um, heavy heart because you know I, it's work you know and I'm I don't like work to be honest I'd rather just sort of line lie a hammock um, 24-7 well actually I wouldn't really but you know what I'm saying um, I'm always a bit like oh god I've got to do this and then when I start listening back it, it's always the same reaction which is ah oh, this is actually enjoyable I, I'm really kind of Uh, enjoying being reminded of the chats that we had and the people that I spoke to and finding the clips. Sometimes I've kind of uh, already marked the clips and that makes my life easier but other times then I just missed the opportunity to do that which is you know frankly just admin on my part but I did enjoy going back to uh, listen to those episodes from this year and so yeah once I've done this uh, it's always a great joy to put it together. This episode Finally, and last but by no means least, is also brought to you by Picktime, the advanced online gallery platform for photographers that combines flexible, beautiful client galleries for seamless photo delivery, customizable layouts, built-in slideshows, client-specific print shops, etc. etc. Basically, PickTime is innovating the digital space between photographers and their clients by providing all the tools you need to make sales, engage with your customers and tell your story. Basically, go to pick-time.com and you can try it yourself completely free for 30 days. Sign up for their trial period, pick-time.com and enter the code of small voice to get an exclusive bonus month when you upgrade to any PickTime paid plan. Have a look at that Um, platform again a sponsor I'm very happy to have on board because I think it's a brilliant uh, service and if you want to sell prints or share work um, with clients this is the platform on which to do it so here we go your 2023 a small voice conversation with photographers year in review and I will introduce each guest individually uh, at the beginning of each clip there'll be a little bit more from me just to sign off right at the end Episode one ninety five. Aaron Schumann.
1: I was infatuated with the work of Richard Avedon. Kind of when I was 17, 18 years old. <clears throat> my father had a had a subscription to the New Yorker magazine, and at the time, Avedon was the um, the staff photographer there. So every week, I would kind of you know pick up pick up my dad's magazine, looking for his pictures um, in it, and um, tear them out and put them on my bedroom wall. And I was really infatuated with him and his work, and um, and so when I got to New York, um, I started making lots of like street portraits in a you know semi vein of of Avedon. I wasn't bringing around a white backdrop or anything, but it was kind of I was looking for those faces and characters, and also printing in a similar kind of high contrast style um, to like in the American West work, and um, mm. and and the university where I was. Studying, um, you you could have they they basically you could apply to have an ex a quote unquote exhibition in the kind of hallways on the way to the dark rooms, um it on on the eighth floor of this this kind of art school building. And um and so a friend and I asked if we could have an exhibition, and I put some of these these pictures on the wall, just kind of eight by ten fiber base prints um in cheap frames and kind of lined the wall with them. <clears throat> and then um and because Abaddon was in New York at the time, I just figured. I should invite him. I should see if he wants to come along to the the quote unquote opening, which again was, <laughs> you know, not much more than, than kids hanging around in a dark room, but, um, but yeah, so I, so I sent a letter to him um, to be honest. I can't remember exactly what it said apart from, I'm sure it just said, I love your work and please, you know, I, I am deeply inspired by it. And can you, if you're interested, we're having an opening of this exhibition and he wrote back, you know, surprisingly, I couldn't believe it, but I got this letter back from him, from his studio, it was signed by him. And it just, um, you know, it said, "I'm sorry. I'm very busy. I'm working all the time, day and night, weekends. Mm-hmm. I really don't have time to come to this opening." But um, but I really appreciate what you're doing, and um, and he and then he said something in the vein of, "I can't remember the exact wording, but um, you know, my only." I'll read it yeah, out. Go for it. Yeah, I'll read.
0: I'll read it out. The only, this was the, the second paragraph, the only advice I have is that you do something connected to photography every day of your life, and you'll be surprised what happens.
1: Exactly, and that's what I really took to heart, that idea of um, being connected to photography every day, something doing something connected to photography every day, because of course at that time, as a kind of 18-year-old, I just thought in order to be a photographer, you have to have a camera on you at all times, you have to shoot all day, every day, and of course you do, you do need to make lots and lots of pictures, but but taking that, invite, uh, that advice on board that you, that as long as you do something connected to photography every day um, it will lead to kind of surprising n- new things. And so um, all of a sudden that kind of world opened up to me where I realized that actually I was reading a lot about photography. I was going to exhibitions. I was talking to my friends who were photographers, you know, I was studying photography. I was um, interning at, you know, and working at different galleries and assisting photographers. And so all of a sudden i realized that like if i just saturated my life with things that were connected to photography um that was just as productive if not more productive than than constantly making pictures without really reflecting on them
2: episode 196 eugene richards you're sitting there with 30 contact 40 book, contacts books all over the floors um and you know, you find yourself staying up late into the night thinking there has to be something there and then finding nothing at all. And then you, people on Instagram writing you and saying, um, oh, my God, you would love to look at your contact sheets. And I tell them quite honestly, probably not, <laughs> because they're going to disappoint the shit out of you. <laughs> um, they're going to, it's like everybody else, I think, you know, uh, there, there are people, I remember looking at, you know, some of the you know, contact sheets from the Americans and their old Robert Frank would have three wonderful photographs on one roll. That doesn't happen. I mean, I just have, you know, sometimes you wonder how pictures happen. I think it's the, a process of holding back when you're a photographer, you, you take pictures, even though in, when there's really nothing to photograph mm-hmm. and then, and then situations unfold and suddenly there's kind of a moment. So there's a lot of garbage in there. And mm-hmm. um, you know so it it, uh, it was an interesting process
0: yeah yeah and i mean i've heard you say that you know you've probably got fewer pictures than a lot of photographers because most of the stuff that you've done the, the project that you're kind of really well known for you did them in an incredibly short period of time compared to some of the sort of yeah. long-term projects that people people work on partly i guess as a as a function of the fact that you know you were a jobbing photojournalist and you were commissioned here there and, and everywhere um you didn't necessarily spend you know years and years on these things i think the pictures in cocaine true cocaine blue the red hook the red hook project uh you were there what a few weeks six weeks or something and four yeah, weeks of it, that was preparation
2: yeah I, I, yeah well,
3: well,
2: yeah all all of that work and the uh, because i was working with a incredible initially for two parts of the project an incredible reporter named ed barnes and, uh, and it was, it was encounters. It was hanging out in the street and like all of what we do, it's like you're doing now is you, uh, the best you can do is engage in conversation. Uh, the people who are actually dealing drugs and so forth, how can I be photographed, not initially. And if you do photograph them in advance of a relationship, you're gone or it's dangerous or you're, or, you know, people are going to cut you off. Mm. So what happens the processes people will say well not me but there's somebody else who will talk to you and projects kind of grow but they uh, they take time and in the case when you're on assignment uh, for Life magazine (laughs) you'd have to every couple of days call the editor and basically lie to them about how well it was going (laughs) and uh, at that time I had a great photo editor named Peter Howe and uh, Peter knew it was all bullshit he knew it wasn't going well and he would stretch the time a little more so i can't remember the exact time i think it, it, it ended up in like seven weeks for um mm-hmm. the two episode 197 martin parr this tsunami
0: of imagery that's that's being released on a you know daily basis now also must have an influence on, on the way that people view photography and you know what does where does that leave a, a, us us photographers, as it were, you know, professionally, it's a it's a it's kind of a threat, I think. I I don't I don't feel threatened by it
4: because, I mean, most of these pictures are very bad. And I have to quickly say that most of the pictures I take are very bad, you know, because uh, to get the good pictures, it's almost impossible. If you went out in the morning and said, today, I'm only going to take good pictures. You wouldn't get anywhere. You you wouldn't even start. Right. So you've got to have that momentum of shooting and you've got to have found the right subject, the right place, the right time and then things will start to happen.
0: Oh, so you're an advocate of that sort of approach where you know you've got to just keep keep shooting and you, you don't you're not you're not worried about diff- producing like you say bad photographs. I
4: produce bad photos all the time. Right. Uh, and uh, and most of the pictures on Instagram are bad. Yeah. But that's why people come and look at uh, known photographers Instagram for, you know, because you know, I guess uh, those names that we all know and love uh, you know, have got good photographs and people want to see what they're like. Yeah. And, uh, you know that's that's an important role that uh, instagram actually plays yeah well it's, a, it's an introduction
0: to these people now i mean i was you know but i suppose back you know back in the day you'd have to go and find a a, a photo book that might um, be um extremely difficult to to come by and uh, probably quite expensive as well now you can just go to instagram and see people's work so yes yeah. but i
4: i get a lot of pictures a lot of books sent to me and some are really good and a lot of them are very bad mm. i never know quite what to do with them all because uh <laughs> You know, it's, it's very difficult to throw out a book. Yeah, yeah. And I'm reluctant to do that. So we try and find homes for the ones that we don't think uh, really work. But, you know, it, it, because it's, publishing is so easy now and because you can do it yourself, people often publish unresolved projects, basically. Mm, mm. You know, just people love the idea of having a book, of seeing the pictures, you know, but you could take a book in an afternoon. Mm. Uh, and, for example, Drum is a good example of Crass Clement actually shooting a whole book in an Irish pub, in two hours, which has become probably the best-known photography book in Ireland. Right. So sometimes even that can work. Yeah. But most of the time it doesn't because photographers are lazy. They don't do enough work. They they think they've got something when they haven't. Yeah. And this applies to the people who are listening to this podcast. Yeah. You know, you're not ambitious enough. You haven't actually identified what it is in your work that could be interesting to follow up, to make more pictures in that vein, Mm. which will help them to... Bring together the, the, uh, the subject matter that they're interested in and their ability to connect with it. Mm-hmm. It's that quality of the connection which is so crucial.
0: Episode 198, Gregory Crudson.
5: I always, I've said many times, like, I feel like every artist has one story to tell. And that central story is like told through, you know, an uh, artist's lifetime. And you kind of, when you come of age in, you know, your early 20s, you're confronted with, like, movies and artwork that you love or you hate, and you're defined in a certain way as a kind of aesthetic being. Hmm. And then you spend your life sort of working out those things, you know, um, and trying to find yourself within that sort of frame of influences. So I um you look at my very earliest pictures, I, I think there is that those kind of in an early expression of it, like the themes and motifs and concerns that I've always, always been interested in from early on. Hmm. That's something about the uncanny you know finding some kind of mystery and beauty in everyday life it's something about uh trying to find a connection you know trying to find um some kind of meaning in the world you know but hmm. do you think that like it's all well, the pictures and and there's something kind of about separation or disconnect, you know. That's built into the medium, you know. The photography is, is about that in a certain way. It's about framing the world and looking in or being separate from
0: something. Episode 199, Nick Brent.
6: Listen, every project I go into, I have no bloody clue whether it's going to work. But... Ben, that is part of the buzz. By which I mean I like to go into each project excited and scared shitless. <laughs> I, I I find that challenge to be incredibly stimulating. Um mm. and like I said earlier if i'm on autopilot if i'm getting too comfortable i have got to move on as fast as possible now there are artists many 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 artists and creators who obsessively work on the same theme the same subject throughout their lives because in the words of samuel beckett they're trying trying again fail fail again fail better so whether it's mm-hmm. Lucian Freud trying to get the fleshiness of flesh right, or Bacon trying to get his paint swirls right, or or you know, Monet with his water lilies and Monet's friends coming around saying, Oh Claude, you're not still painting those bloody water lilies, are you? It's like, yeah, I still haven't got them right. Fuck off. <laughs> um, um, it's it's that's fine, that's great. I'm not kind of made that way. I need to keep I need to keep scaring myself.
7: Episode 200, Emma Hardy. I mean, I was very lucky in that my kids, I had three healthy kids. Mm. I had three bright, inquisitive, curious, I would say relatively happy kids. You know, they had their moments, of course. Uh, And the setting that we, that me and my husband took them to, which was you know, very big countryside, and we had animals, and we grew vegetables. So and that was trees. an echo
0: of your own. Childhood. That was an
7: echo of my own childhood. It was an echo of the best of my own childhood. But but I I had this absolute burning endeavor that I was going to give my kids a different childhood that was angst free and anger free. And mm-hmm. I mean, obviously those are those are impossible things because we all have all those things within us. At any given moment, something happens and we'll respond. So also to to give. Children, something that's too idyllic, I don't think serves them very well. I think I think there's got to yeah. be a sprinkle of difficulty, a and bit of strive. grit in the oyster. <laughs> yeah, 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 a bit of grit in the oyster, absolutely. But my, um, let's say my struggle—if I use that bigger word—because I know I had life extremely easy, really. But my my struggle was, can I, can I be a good enough mum? Well, certainly a better mum than my own mum was to me. Um, can I be a good enough mum and and be a creative? And when I say successful creative, I don't mean out in the world. It's just like can I can I do work that actually means something that that will make the time that I've pulled from my kids that I've kind of rearranged them a bit, or I've said let's go and do this. And it's been a it's been a slightly manufactured instance in order for me to take some pictures. And I'm I d- I did have this. Discomfort quite often. I mean, it was quite amplified very often. There was this this like I'm I'm stealing time from them I'm not being a good mom. I'm pushing Something in a direction that it might not necessarily go in because I feel that a better more meaningful picture might happen at the end of it And Mm. it wasn't always like that. Sometimes I literally was catching something that was going on and Then you know the photo Moment would come to an end for whatever reason and then i'd go into that spin that every photographer i'm sure suffers from endlessly and i don't know how to i don't know how to not have this which is oh i should have why didn't i i could have da 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 i failed i missed da 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 and and actually what i learned as time went by which i think is a really important learning is that when things line up when the when life or the you know the universe out there says kind of I've got something I can show you. Are you ready? Mm. Are you ready? And you might be ready and you might catch this thing that's shown to you. And that's incredibly beautiful. And the times that that's happened, I, I was very aware of it. I mm. felt like my whole body started fizzing.
0: Episode 201, Antoine Dagatar. Uh,
7: on a
8: very basic level, uh, basic level. Uh, uh, this work actually... Um, I mean, contamination, absorption, adsorption, you know, like they're all words that, to me, they, they condensate the condensate mm-hmm. my, my practice, you know. In, on the first level, I, 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 I try, I try, I, I do absorb the world, um, uh, get con- contaminated by it, you know, which means I don't try to protect myself, you know. I mean, the worst, the worst possible condition of the human being, which is the, the condition of most people, in the contemporary world, I think is to be a spectator, to be a consumer, mm. to be a viewer. You know, so because you are safe and you just like, part you not know, just object of the spectacle. You know, so I try to be totally um, uh, vulnerable mm. and to expose myself to all type of violences that uh, constitute the world. So this is the way I get contaminated. The way I uh, I absorb. You no, know? the other way I try to defend by my no, not by, by my words, but my my action, my positions. I, I try to contaminate the world. You know, I try to to disturb the <laughs> the harmonious the uh,
0: equilibrium.
8: Uh, and I try to just to not to let die some ideas or some possibilities, some possible ways of existing. And um, but this I do. I mean, not f- with a militant point of view. Or, I, I do for my own sake, and but I don't want to hide it. I don't want to. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I hope. I'm not sure. Even I, I hope for it, but I mean, I am conscious maybe that uh, this little sparkling <laughs> mm-hmm. possibility uh, might be disturbing and might be uh, useful for uh, for some others. You know, mm-hmm. like, uh, it, it is possible not to accept to be part of the uh, of the
9: machine.
0: Episode 202, Igor Posner.
9: I was just infatuated mm. by, by, by everything, by um, mm, just walking, trying to take the photos, looking at the photos, uh, and mm. it, it seemed, yeah.
0: Uh, you can't, like, could you articulate <laughs> what it was? About it that fascinates you. I think, think
9: at the time uh, I, I was in um, in pretty difficult shape psychologically. Um, I um, it felt like um, I was in a certain environment when I was like just completely in, alone and not relating to people. Um, I'm i have a bit of a learning disability as well i'm i'm, I'm a little bit of a dyslectic and, and i was in this um, i mean very good university it was it was just very competitive so um, i don't know it, it felt like um maybe i was going in motion i, I was like so lost mm. um, at least simply put uh, my, just my heart wasn't in it to mm. to continue the the, the path of becoming a doctor and um yeah e- even like from early a- age I, I was i was always interested in in history architecture i was exposed to, this, to, to those things but but it's never been uh, cultivated in me mm. so and then mm. um yeah so so
0: like having this camera and ha- having this kind of realization that that you'd found something was that partly what allowed you to realize that the medis- the medical route was not was not for you or had you already st- sort of started to really know in your heart of hearts that you weren't on a path that you, you were no,
9: if, if not for th- photography I would probably follow the uh, that that path mm. and I, I didn't have any alternative and once
0: you became infatuated with the camera did you start to seek out you know other f- photography did you start to sort of go to libraries and and, and you know and discover
9: you know other photographers right uh that that happened later uh all i wanted to do is just to photograph just to just to go out there and um like be on a street uh, and and just photograph just incredible uh sense of uh, freedom and liberation of like not for the first time in my life of not going from point a to point b mm. that's what photography gives you because you have to open to uh like everything that's around you all of a sudden, I started like, just looking at things. It's, mm. it's a very trivial thing to say. Um, but but it, it, to me, it felt like something I've never experienced before or I've never experienced it since, since my like, early childhood. Episode 203, Stacey Kranitz.
10: I really love being alone. That mm. goes back to my childhood. I didn't feel safe around other people for a long time, and so I just distrust that like type of intimacy, Mm. Um, and I mean, it's like sad, I I should go back to therapy. (laughs) I'm not saying that this is healthy or good, Mm, mm. but I I love being alone. Mm. Um, And so I did buy a house in the woods in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) And I am very fortunate that the personal work and the editorial work have me traveling all the time Mm. Um, but there are times because I don't those aren't planned out they just kind of come as they come and so there are times where I'm home alone for three weeks and Mm -mm. I start to go a little nuts Mm. yeah Um, but it's it's the right fit for me
0: yeah but do you still struggle with, with sort of people and social situations and feeling you know okay in that environment is that still a challenge for you
10: it is and I think that's why I love the camera Mm. it makes that so much the camera for me is a connector it connects me to people and I always knew that if I hadn't been a photographer especially an editorial photographer where you're sent out all these different places that I would be a very unhealthy hermit Mm. um, and I would just wither away I always thought that and which isn't even logical but that's what I felt and um, and so yeah I mean the camera's a lifeline for me
0: Mm. Because I mean, think about what the the pictures you, you know when you're out in Appalachia. I mean, there must have been times when some of those situations didn't feel particularly safe. I'm wondering whether uh, do you, in some weird way, feel comfortable around violence, or do you, know, f- yeah, because you're kind of used to it? Now, there's a picture of a guy throwing a chair. I think he's throwing a chair at his, his door, isn't he? Isn't that, isn't that one of one of them? That's Pat. That's Pat. Yeah. So he, he so clearly you know he's you you know you have a good relationship with with him, um, but that kind of felt. As someone who had grown up around a lot of violence, that that can't, that can't must be kind of triggering for you in some way, or does it just feel like, you know, this is just my, this is my kind of, this is meat and drink to me kind of thing?
10: It does, and I don't flinch. Like, I, when I see something violent, even a gunfight, I've gone, I've moved towards right. instead of away. Mm. It's something in me, um, I don't fully understand how it developed, but I... Am incredibly calm mm. in these very chaotic situations yeah, yeah i've heard
0: it. yeah i've heard other people talk about that episode 204 a pricket uh
11: in in terms of uh, you know my trajectory uh i've said um when when talking about this this exhibition and um uh putting putting all of this work together it's almost like uh the story of war told backwards. So I started off talking about, you know, the aftermath of conflict, decades after after the war and the yeah. atrocities had happened. Then, you know, I started getting closer to it with the uh, Syrian refugee work uh, that I that I that I did, um, where I was. Uh, you know, looking at the 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 migration routes that people were taking and then by the time it came to you know the ISIS work in in Iraq and Syria, it was almost like I wanted to get closer to the source myself Mm. and see up close what it was I'd been investigating all these years and what people had been running from. Yeah. You know, maybe it was a it was a personal uh, fascination that led me there to a certain extent, but also Mosul was essentially a humanitarian crisis mm. as much as a, a war, mm. and that's why I went in the first place. When I first went, I wasn't thinking I was I was going to go on these military embeds and really get on the front line. I went to cover the humanitarian crisis that was that was you know that was huge, yeah, hundreds yeah. of thousands of people um who were displaced and then you know yeah it just (laughs) as as uh can easily happen once you're there on the doorstep Uh. and you can hear the fighting going on there's a curiosity almost you know
0: episode 205 photo london 2023 special we came into this halfway through um i've run into chris dawley brown people which is why we were deep in conversation before i even uh had time to introduce him. but um, It's really lovely to see Chris down there. We, um, you will probably have heard his episode, although I couldn't tell you which number it is at this point. How are you doing, Chris?
12: Yeah, I'm good. I'm all about to see you with your
0: uh, like state-of-the-art gear that Ben's got there. Um, yeah, lo-fi um, yeah. audio stuff. So what's your general take on this event? <clears throat> you, you must have been before and... Um, yeah, Perhaps be, you'll go I, again.
12: I've been before, and I always walk out the exit after half an hour wanting to top myself. Um, Why precisely? Because that could be for a number of reasons. Well, I suppose it might be because I'm jealous of decent photographers, or it might be because I think they're all awful. I don't know. Uh, Combination. Better than like last year was... Um, was, was a low point because all these sort of pictures of the obvious ones in the tent, like you know, Prince Charles as he was then, or something, you know, uh, knocking out prints of him for four and a half grand. Who would want that above their mantelpiece? Mm. And it's like uh, I suppose it, there's a kind of fetishism with these kind of events where the the print, the camera, the sort of the art form itself, it's turned into a an art form that, that it doesn't really sort of deserve. Um, because I always kind of separate art and photography a bit and here you're kind of reminded that it's you know, it's kind of like part of the part of the art world and it doesn't always sit so well simply because of the the characters involved in it you know, they're uh, they're, they're different it's, yeah, fetishism I call it hmm. do, do, do you do you kind of get that, I mean you've got uh, one of the, the really worrying things is you see these fantastic collections of photography going back all the way to the year dot you know like fox talbot prints um, and they're they're in the hands of someone who's uh, not really <laughs> able to do them justice you know they're like knocking out prints on a on an office laser printer and framing them up and you think it's not you know i can see this in a book i don't i don't need this is not something i'm going to see at sotheby's or something and pay half a million pound for but how, how come they've got the rights to those negatives to reproduce them, you know? So that's a bit odd. Mm. Um, how
0: come they've got the rights? I, I, you know, that's a good question. Yeah, well, you can't really ask them that. <laughs> how
12: come you got the right to be here? Um, but that's, you know, they're kind of usually, uh, you know, very, very gra- glamorous, glamorously decked out kids, basically, who maybe are looking after their grandfather's gallery or something. Um, that sounds about possible. Yeah, and their knowledge of photography isn't always that hot, you know, so yeah. I'm kind of I cast a bit of a critical eye on it and I take the moral high ground, which I shouldn't do. So, you know, it's a nice day. Everyone's
0: happy. <laughs> Who needs me as blog? It's like me. Episode 206, Chico Review 2023
13: Special. My name's Brian Scutmott. I'm a photographer from Austin, Texas. I'm a reviewer here at Chico this year and um, this will be my fourth time being involved with uh, the Chico Hot Springs portfolio review the reason I like coming here beside the obvious point that you're with your friends at a beautiful place mm. um, is the, the excitement from the talent whether that's the reviewees or the reviewers I think about this world that I'm interested in and how talented some of the people are and how they might be viewed in years from now as a, as a fan of like uh, country music or whatever. You think of Texas in the 70s or 80s and it's like, we had Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Guy Clark and Chris Christofferson and all these uh, wonderful people existing in the same place at the same time and uh, you just think, fuck, those were the glory days. Or you know the expats in Paris in the 20s and 30s, where it was like uh, Hemingway and Gertrude Stein and like all these amazing artists and writers hanging out. Um, I'm not trying to say <laughs> that what we're doing is in any way as as uh, you know, historic as that, but within our uh, w- little world and the interests that we have, it's fucking incredible to know that we just watched Vanessa Winship. Give a lecture this morning, mm. and in that same room was Andrea Modica and Karen Hadelberg, um, and like, my God, like, we are living in the good old days, <laughs> you know. So um, I, I, I really, I really think something special is happening, and I think that um, we're we're surrounded with talent, and um, this event in particular uh, is is bringing that together in really exciting ways.
0: For, for anyone who might be. Thinking about applying to attend here, what insight would you share that might be useful with a prospective attendee?
13: Okay, so every day the reviews end and the bar opens, and it's an open bar, um, so you go get your drinks for free. But um, the, the wait staff are wonderful, and you gotta remember to bring uh, cash money to tip them with. Because if it's just if you just have the card, then you're gonna not be able to tip. So you got to bring the, the money to, to to give these people a little something on top because they really take care of us well. Episode
0: two hundred and seven, Bertrand Mernier. I was in two thousand sixteen.
14: I was invited by the Arts Museum of Wuhan. Wuhan, uh, Wuhan. Yeah. Now famous for yeah, exactly
0: <laughs> other reasons. Yeah.
14: yeah. Uh, so I was invited by this museum to to have a residency to stay there and to to you know to take pictures, and uh, I had the support of the French embassy also so whatever, so in two thousand and sixteen, I arrived in Wuhan. I had this kind of you know t v crew you know with me for when I arrived at the airport and I went to to the museum to meet the director and a few other people and you know after a few hours i I just understood they they set up everything for me. And they just set up also the, 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 um, the pictures I have to take. <laughs> yeah. So I was tired, you know, with the uh, jet lag. So, you know, I said, okay, uh, i go back to my uh, hotel and uh, let's see to next day. So next day, you know, they pick me up at the hotel. And yeah, so... They uh, uh we, we had a car and uh, they show me where I have to take pictures, <laughs> yeah. So we had a fight, you know. I went back to my hotel and said, Go for I can't do that. I mean, uh, I go back to my uh, I go back to France if you know it's the way you know you think, you know, um, a residency in photo photographic residency is working. So we had a long shot, I expressed what I want to do, blah blah, and maybe um, he has been a fight for a few days, and at the end. Uh, you know, I was free to do what I want, mm. but it has been, it, it, I mean, it's been hard, whatever. Yeah, that was, so,
0: a, that was a victory yeah. in, in itself. So
14: I stayed almost three weeks and I was shooting, you know, and I had a translator and I have a guide, so, you know, I was, you know, I knew what I wanted to do. So I did my job, went back to France, uh, I, I, I did my editing. Uh, I do I did some scan I sent to the museum and uh, like a year later we got the exhibition and so I did the prints in France I sent the prints uh, to China Wuhan they framed everything and uh, at the end we I got the exhibition so I have a talk and uh, on my uh, topic and uh, it was great I mean it was fine and After the talk, when I went back to France, I received an email and the museum, but the museum is is running through the government. Mm they decided to buy all my prints. Mm. So it, it was the kind of amazing victory for me because to see Chinese people buying my prints, usually the contrary, you know, mm-hmm. We buy mm. to Chinese people. And this time the Chinese people, uh, the Chinese museums through the Chinese government of uh, the city of Wuhan bought me the, the, all the prints. And I think in photography, because I love China, uh, it's one of my biggest achievements yeah, in life
0: yeah. episode 208, Karen Hattelberg
15: it's kind of an origin story in my mind uh, that kind of unpacks my, my process I guess um, but I, would, I just finished college and I was driving home and I was struggling to, to make my way there for whatever reason, I couldn't quite uh, go back east, you know, mm. I, was, I was being delayed for some reason, and uh, I ended up in this, this kind of makeshift bar that someone had built out in a trailer in the middle of the plains. and, um, you know, it's that thing when you go inside somewhere and the, the, the needle scratches on the record and really? you're not from around here kind of thing, yeah. but I sat down and was having drinks with a few folks, and um, the day went on, and then it was getting dark, and we were still at it, and someone asked me to to drive my van, um, that I had parked out front of mm. the bar and it had a trailer with all my worldly possessions. I mean, not that I had much at, at twenty years old or twenty two or whatever it was, twenty four. But um I said, sure, and he got in the car and drove away into the night and realized at that point that I had no idea who he was or even what his name was. And um we all walked back into the bar and continued uh continued having drinks and hours and hours went by and uh yeah the van was gone basically Mm -hmm. um with the trailer and the next thing i know it's morning and i'm i'm waking up inside the the van keys are there and nothing's missing nothing's out of place um so, yeah, I don't know if it was dumb luck, but mm. it felt like this, uh, this, this door opening up for me in terms of their, you know, people are better than we think yeah. they are. People yeah. are more trustworthy and generous and kind than we, th- we give them credit for.
0: Episode 209, Trish Morrissey.
16: My parents' family album was actually a cake box into which everything was randomly put. Mm. From beautiful photographs of my grandparents' wedding, you know, a Dwardian wedding, to you know, recent pictures of my nieces and nephews. So the and they were all just in this box, and depending on who'd been in the box and sifted through, would depend on what was sitting on top. You know, I mean, it was really and things were getting damaged. Mm. And one of the things that started off this interest was um, the realization that my parents were getting old. And the knowledge of most of this box would be gone with their deaths, <laughs> their mm-hmm. demise, or the loss of their marbles. Um, so I just thought I'd try and put some order on this box. Um, so I sort of put everything looking at the photographs from the sort of, particularly from the 30s, 40s, 50s of theirs, before we were, you know, I was born in the late 60s, um, of people that I didn't know, like re- distant relatives or friends of theirs. Um, so I put them into envelopes looking at the the clothes sort of into decades and ask, then sat them down in an afternoon and asked them who was in the photographs. And the, most of the time they agreed, but a lot of the time they would disagree about where it was or who was in it. And then we'd mm. come to a consensus and then I'd write on the back. And I was really aware that me writing on the back would then become the fact of the picture, if you know what I mean. People wouldn't question that this wasn't the truth. So I just became... Interested in the slippery notion of photographic fact, and particularly when it relates to families and how um, you know the family album is itself a sort of uh, propaganda tool to show what a functional, happy, wonderfully amazing, wonderful, amazing family you are, you have, or you are a part of. But in Mm. fact, it's curated um, and you know belies the truth often. So, so therefore, the idea of a fake family album kind of you know grew
0: from that. Episode
17: 210, Moises Saman. And, and, and indeed, it was in Iraq where after spending years there, uh, then I started questioning what am I exactly doing? You know, what what sort of pictures am I taking? What you know, how is my work being consumed? You know, mm. and, and do I have a role to play in in shaping a particular narrative? You know, am I willing or unwillingly, uh uh shaping a particular narrative of this war you know so and i think that i was able to to have this sort of uh ability to question because i was returning and coming back and for me became a, a very long uh uh period of my life you know mm. so so i think this this uh, uh ability to be able to come back to a story and and to start sort of seeing a little bit you know not from the the sort of the the, the main sort of perspective that that you might uh, encounter uh, the first time you arrive in a place that affords you sometimes this other sort of clarity you know when you start seeing things uh, and and you know you start understanding the the disparities sometimes the the contrast the the sort of uh, um, you know, you start realizing that some things don't quite add up. You know, mm. and and it's and ambiguous. Yes, but I think um, you know. Also, it's it, it has to do too for you know at least for me. Uh, you know, being part of this sort of industry and of this machine, and and you know, I, I, by this I mean working for for major publications. Uh, there's a certain sort of dynamic to, to the way that you work. There's a certain uh, uh, need to, to feed this machine on a daily yeah, basis, exactly. or weekly basis. And also working with, with writers that might have a particular story and you're illustrating their point of view or their stories, you know. Mm. So after a while, I kind of had my own things to say, you know, and my own questions. And and that is the moment, I think, when, when uh, my work, perhaps started to evolve uh in Mm. a different direction and and uh, yeah i hope that's really interesting
0: episode 211 Yelena Yemchuk. when did you start working with smashing pumpkins because you did quite a lot of work with them and that i presume that was sort of another inflection point you know that well
18: yeah that's that's kind of what i'm referring to like i i met billy on a shoot um we met um I, that was one of my big jobs. It was like my first really big job, I think, um, mm. through satellite. And, um, there was an amazing art director at Virgin records who, when we send the, my portfolio to him, really loved my work. And he put me up for Lenny Kravitz. I remember, uh, the smashing pumpkins and Bowie mm. and, I was like, wow, this is so exciting. I mean, at th- this point, I haven't done anything. Like, I have <laughs> nothing in my book. Like, I've maybe shot for a few bands, like small bands, for a few weren't magazines. You, weren't
0: you scared? Weren't you nervous? Or did you have a sort of innate confidence in some way? Or were you just faking it?
18: I, I don't know. He put me – I didn't think I was going to get the jobs. He just put me up for them. But I remember my agent telling me, you're, you're up for these jobs. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, right. And then I got a call saying, okay, well, the Smashing Pumpkins want you to shoot their publicity photos and you're flying to Chicago uh, next, whatever, next two weeks or whatever. And I remember talking to Billy on the phone and coming up with the concept. And I said, okay, let's, um," I said, well, what kind of stuff are you into? And he's like, well, your work is so, gothic and weird my stuff was kind of dark and um so like uh it's so funny how my early work is just it was just so silent movie like mm. i can't even describe it but it was definitely um i guess what the band liked
0: what they liked yeah and
18: and i, we, I said oh let's do it like you guys as edward Gorey characters. So I sent him a bunch of like references, or I, I didn't send it to them because there was no, I, I don't know, I, I, we, I don't know. must have sent it in the mail. I can't remember, I don't remember how we used to do stuff, <laughs> but there was all these Edward Gorey characters and this, the stylist that I was working with pulled all these, because you know, when you do publicity photos for bands, you can dress them in anything you want. You know, you can go to costume houses, you can come up with any ideas. I mean, especially in the nineties, it was so cool. Anyway, so I went to Chicago, and that was my first job with them, and it was my first big job. and And then I worked with them for many, many years because I ended up dating Billy for a very long time. So yeah. it was kind of like um, I was part of their. Um, I was like in house art family. director. Yeah, and you got <laughs> in house to... art director, creative director, photographer. Yeah.
3: Episode two twelve. Benjamin Rasmussen. I was talking to a friend who's a um, photography professor and communication professor who's kind of doing a paper on it on like AI and photojournalism and one of the things that we were talking about is like um, I, I don't like I, I guess I just don't <laughs> so like I feel like there's a huge part of photography that could kind of go away and it just sort of would mm. be fine
0: yeah in a way I'm think I'm thinking more in terms of the commercial stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think, you know, I think photojournalism is going to become you know all the more vital um in a sense, you know, and how we're going to recognize, you know, something real from something not real is is a whole other question. But yeah, sorry, I sort of uh I sort of cut you off Ben. So you know, carry on.
3: Yeah, like I, I guess I I just um
0: uh you don't think photojournalism is a
3: threat? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I think that photojournalism is it as it is like to me like some of the larger threats to photojournalism has been a sort of stodgy uh, like industry that's sort of struggled to change or keep up with the times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that at least in the time that I've I've been in it, it's been these sort of existential questions of like photoshop of like like different things um and and to me it's it's a little bit more like well how how does what's the what's the actual visual conversation that society is having like um how has uh like you know does does anyone under the age of like 45 still see the world through a like 35 millimeter reportage Mm. lens um Uh, and, and I think like, uh, I don't know, to me, like those, like, there's some of those things that are, um, uh, (laughs) I was in Blackpool a few years ago, uh, with this like secret society of magicians, um, for, for this magazine story. And one of them, they were like, one of them was sort of like giving advice to this older magician. And this magician's like, you know, I've done, this, I've done this illusion for like for decades. And it's always gotten this great response from people. And like for the last like four or five years, like my audiences like don't respond to it anymore. What's wrong with audiences today? Like, Nothing's wrong with audiences. He's like, you've been doing the same damn trick for like 25 years. Like yeah. yeah. You're the problem.
0: Episode 213, Ian Berry. I was still a member of Visa
19: and doing rather well. So I was, you know quite happy to be in Paris at that time and it was enjoyable anyway I went to see Henri and um, uh, uh, I sat down with him in the in the coffee shop underneath our office at that time Magnum's office and um, the waiter came and I I'm a tea drinker and, you know and I, I ordered coffee because I thought that was more suitable you know, French more bar. French Henri ordered tea and, and no Frenchman drank tea at that time um, and I hauled out my pictures and he sort of shuffled through them like that um, and you know being a Brit I didn't say look I think you're a great photographer I, I didn't sort of try That's to buffer him up in any way you know I just thought well this is what it is you know we'll just take it and uh And he said, okay, and he left. And I went up to the office uh, shortly afterwards, and the bureau chief said, well, what do you do to him? He hates you. And uh, so uh, I told him what had happened, and he said, oh, he doesn't like to look at prints. He wants to look at contact sheets. He wants to see how you think. He said, I'll fix up another appointment, which he did, and I went back, and I ordered tea, and I brought along my contacts, which Henri spent ages going through. And, um, and he said, uh, great, you know, good to have you. And I went upstairs afterwards and they said, fine, you know, you're, uh, you're in Magnum. <laughs> that was it. Um, again, pure luck, actually.
20: Episode 215, Luca Locatelli. If you think about the photography Power, uh, let's say during the Vietnam War. Yeah. You know? Good example, yeah. Yeah, that, that was incredible what it happened. It really you know? changed everything. Because yeah. everything has changed because of uh, pictures, you know? But we're living wh- in a wh- very
0: different world now. Yeah,
20: exactly. But w- what, I'm, what I w- I'm trying to say is that that picture, uh, those pictures, they were mm, the pictures that people need to see to understand and create a culture that they didn't have at that time, which war, it was terrible, mm. you know? Mm. Nowadays, we don't even recognize if a picture of war is made where, you know? Yeah. We are getting used so much. And so when, when we think about photography and changing the world, we always think in one direction, That's what I believe. And we think that photography is about the last flood, is about the last fire, is about the last tremendous things happening in the world with climate change, you know. Mm. And how if it's not the only perspective? And how if we can give to young people pictures that they can show them solutions and they can show them a way of imagine and open a debate about the future. We don't know that because we don't have so much pictures mm-hmm. on that, you know. And uh, so I don't, I don't believe that photography or videography nowadays, because the algorithm, let's say, has changed, you know, is actually losing its power. I believe that is losing its power, the drama, you know, yeah. we are not into the drama anymore we we have too many it's a tsunami of drama yeah. you know, every day a tsunami and of imagery as we well, don't yeah. recognize i mean of course i'm not saying that this is not necessary it is necessary of course but we need to balance this out mm. because otherwise and 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 we know for history especially that the drama is connected so much to consumerism fear
0: you know episode 216 Corinne dufka you did get to a point where you know it just um became untenable for you and i think you know it was about the dehumanization that you were feeling um uh, and then th- this amazing transition that you made into into human rights, but that came um when the, there was a terrorist bombing in nairobi uh the american yeah. embassy mm-hmm. um and I think you you know you were more pissed off about missing the the the, the story than you were about you know than you were upset about the yeah. fact that there had been these victims and and again that 's an amazing honest kind of uh yeah. Recounting of that yeah. event. But um, yeah. what was it about this feeling that, you know, kind of disturbed you so much, really, I guess, you know, the fact that you had somehow lost something of your yeah. hu- humanity in a way?
21: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I just, I just, yeah, I mean, I just didn't feel anything. All I cared about, you know, it, it, it ones on the hamster wheel, like, and, and. All I cared about was going to another conflict and getting amazing pictures that could, you know, distinguish my career and that could win awards. Like, and I, I and I I, and, and, you know, this event after after getting on the plane with a whole bunch of journalists to cover the second war in the DRC in just a few years and then arriving in Rwanda and and watching on CNN as, you know, the biggest story of our of of of. Uh, sort of the decade unfolded what with uh, you know which was the terrorist bombings of the Nairobi and also the the in the Tanzanian capital of the embassy sorry and um yeah and just realizing i'd felt nothing for the kenyan people and it i just felt i just hated myself and mm. um couldn't live with myself and and then i just you know, it was also this sense that I could never take a vacation. I couldn't do anything. All I could think about was, was uh, I guess there's a term for it now, which is fear of missing out. FOMO, uh, mm. you know. Mm, mm. Um, and um, and I, you know, the, the percentage of humanity and empathy for the victims and for what I was photographing was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So, it was just... Uh, an epiphany that I had um, and like a light switch going on that I was just, I was getting out of that life.
0: Episode 217, Max Pam.
22: At that point, I was, um, I would, you know, all of my friends were in Paris. Mm -hmm. And so I went there quite a lot. And uh, it was at the launch of Going East. um, and, uh, And Francois put it to me that, there was this changing of the guard going on. It was the same year I think Martin Parr had been invited to join. They were looking for new talent, basically. Mm. And and Francois, God bless him, had a lot of faith in what I was doing. Uh, he he gave me my debut show at Arles in eighty six. Mm. So ultimately it came down to him saying, "Look, you're uh, you're living in London." So you work with the London dudes in uh, in Brixton. Yeah. And so I thought, wow, man, um, you know, how amazing. It was this piece of photographic history here I wouldn't mind, you know, catching mm, my name to. Yeah, of course. Uh, and so oh, I, I got my portfolio, um, went down to Brixton. I think I met Chris Boot first, oh. uh, and he just handballed me off to... Um, Christy or Perkins, and uh, eh, so we sit down at a round table. I hand the box over to Chris, and he's flicking through it pretty fast, which I don't mind. You know, I, I think people labouring over um, yeah over portfolios, I think, like just shoot me. You know, it <laughs> takes too long. I mean, flipping through it, close the lid on it, and he said. It's not about anything, and and I looked at him and thought, I thought, well, you, you know, you, you can't defend your own work. People either get it or they don't. What am I going to say? So I said, yeah, no, it's not about anything. <laughs> I, you know, and then what's going on at the back of my? It's only my life, yeah, really, <laughs> uh, with a few expletives, you know, flung in there. And so, and he said, yeah, you know what? You've you've also got to bring, you've got to bring clients with you. And I said uh, Chris, oh, I've never had a client in my life. You know, I, I've never worked for anyone. Mm. Oh, it's always been work I've done of my own volition. Right, I'd save my money up and I'd gone, yeah. you know, I'd go home to Australia, save up for six months, and it'd give me six months in the field doing field mm. work.
0: Episode two eighteen, Paris twenty twenty three special. Okay, Chris Anderson is just signing the um hopefully the last book for a while so I can get a quick chat in with him and uh, find out a little bit more about this new one, Odyssey. Hello sir, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm alright, yes, nice to be in Paris. Yeah. Tell me a little good bit time. about this new book then, Odyssey. What, what would you like to tell us about it in terms of the work and how it all came to be? Oh my goodness, uh, let's It's see. quite a departure from what we're used to seeing to some extent. Uh, a departure. Well, maybe you don't think so.
23: Well, obviously it's black and white, so yeah. it's a departure in many ways. But um, in my mind, it was sort of—I was thinking of it like a palate cleanser after the three family books. Right. Um, but um, in the end, it's um, someone was looking at it the other day and is like, "This isn't a. This isn't a palate cleanser. This is number four of the family books because okay. because it's. He's like, that's you in the book." And and actually, the you know the the book is sort of a an, a not so self serious um, attempt at a at a fiction at a, at a mythology. There's this you know echo of a half remembered, half imagined Greek mythology, um, you know Homeric Odysseus uh, kind of thing, and um, and I s- suppose there's some of that that echoes back to my own life of of where I started in in my work as a photographer and and finding my way back home and you know like odysseus spent uh you know 10 years or whatever trying to get back home uh there's there's some of that that echoes throughout the book but in many ways it's um yeah sort of a fun attempt at a at at a at a fiction
0: yeah yeah well you you had your own (laughs) trials at sea as well don't forget you you know you very nearly uh yeah, lost your life there, so that that echoes with him as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The pictures are a little bit, I suppose you could say, more abstract than you might usually be working
23: with. Yes, much more abstract, yeah. um, and intentionally so, because again, I was, you know, playing with this idea of a of a of a fictional narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and not wanting it at, in the beginning, making the pictures just for the fun of making pictures, like the sheer joy of seeing, you know, the sheer joy of. Uh, of of, uh, of kind of the craft of photography, there's, there's a, there is a bit of a craft uh, that I did with this one, which is you know um, a, a process that I was using that's different than I've I've done before that I've been playing with in the in the past uh, years actually since COVID. Uh-huh. And, um, uh huh. And so there was there was some of that involved, and in, um, uh, yeah, which ended up being abstract. Uh, in practice, and then as I started playing with it more intentionally abstract,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. it's hard to tell. Are you in some of these pictures, um, and is the family still in some of these pictures?
23: Yes. Yeah, yeah I'm in a lot of the pictures. Um, I, I represent sort of the I represent the the monsters, the cyclops, <laughs> yeah. on the islands kind of thing. Um, it's my shadow which is how I started playing around with it. It was having fun and realizing, oh, that looks like, that looks like a cyclops. And I was in Greece when I was making this, so my mind was obviously turning towards, uh, towards Odysseus. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and then there is uh, uh, Pia actually uh, plays a role as one of the, as one of the, the
0: sirens. Of course. Uh, yes, that makes a certain amount of sense. <laughs> yeah. Great. Okay, good, well, to, see good to see you. Thank you, Chris. Episode 219... Leonard Pongo.
24: I realized that I would also um, not have a clue what the good stuff is or not. And I really like this idea of working for long times and projects so that the projects show you what you're actually trying to do and the images. But I also come from a place of um, more, more of a kind of approach. So for me, it was very natural to just shoot and shoot and shoot and always have the camera with me and... That was the camera from the beginning, that was clear, the camera was going to be my tool of interacting and processing also, an incredibly overwhelming experience. Um, So I did photograph all the time and that was also kind of, it felt to be who I was. And also to my family, that was also a function that, um, you know, you come from Europe and you are asked about, okay, what are you coming with? Like, we haven't seen you in so long, so what are you bringing, actually? What is the the added value of having you around? And to me, it was a very tough kind of question to be asked. Uh, but And I, I, I didn't have so much that I felt um, uh, I could bring. But through a lot of talking, it also made sense that that interaction and me also bring outside point of views, outside ideas was super beneficial. So it was all about the, the community sharing and we have different experiences and my family or their friends' experience could help me understand the context and my experience could recontextualize what they would be saying. So in the end of the day, everybody was learning. But in terms of function, it also felt super good to be, there and doing my kind of diaristic, arty documentary thing that I didn't really know where it was going, but my family was super open to just letting me be. And also for them to be like, hey, but photograph this, I need photos of that. Uh, Let's go visit them. They they actually have an event and they need someone. And I was super open to that because for me it was more experience. I was, I think, behind all the constructions and expectations, right or wrong, that I might have had. There was behind it, at the core, a uh, um, very intense need for experience. And for me, it's something that's always been super important, is that I'm fine not doing, not knowing much. Um, I have that tool, I'm going to use it. I know what I want is, I didn't grow up in Kinshasa, I didn't grow up in the DRC, but I had this very um, high urgency to kind of recover experience. The only way I could create relations Um, to the land and the environment itself not the people because that was easy that was natural but to the rest the context was through experiencing it it felt to me that was the only way i could ever have anything to say about it
0: And there you have it, folks. That is your year in review 2023 from a small voice Conversations with photographers. I hope you enjoyed listening to those clips and being reminded of all the people that I spoke to this year. And I hope you enjoyed actually listening to the full episodes when they were released as much as I enjoyed actually having those conversations. So it's nice to be reminded of them. And um, yeah, there's more to come in 2024 and a couple of little uh, developments, which I hope to tell you more about in January, which uh, I'm quite excited about for the podcast. So yeah, I will say nothing for now and um, perhaps talk to you about that uh, at the beginning of the new year. In the meantime, um, I guess the only thing left for me to say again is Merry Christmas and have a lovely new year and I will see you very soon. We ought to mention a couple of um, people who we lost this year because that um, uh, sadly and inevitably is always going to be part of this episode two magnum legends went this year one being Elliot Erwitt and one being Larry Fink and so here's to the two of them I'm sure there were many other photographers who also sadly died this year but um, they're the ones that spring to mind so uh, here's to the two of those guys and um, here's to 2024.